Chapter Nine of Foremothers at Chautauqua by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Problem. Eureka Harrison was taking a walk all by her lonesome, as one of the children of their party put it. She belonged to a group who would have liked nothing better than to relieve the lonesomeness, but Eureka would have none of them that afternoon. She wanted to be by herself. She had problems to think out, one especially, of such a character that no one must be allowed to intermeddle. It occurred to her as a curious coincidence that Burnham Roberts should have an engagement that afternoon which did not include her. She had wondered how she should dispose of him, and behold, he had disposed of himself and gone driving with his mother without so much as suggesting that she accompany them. She walked rapidly down the long tree-lined avenue leading from the college to the centre of life. Turning by the colonnade, she walked through one of the main avenues toward the amphitheatre, where half the world was gathered for an afternoon concert. She did not mean to be beguiled by the concert. As she passed the school of expression, she smiled over certain conceits of Burnham's that had to do with her work there. He did not half like her spending so much time over lessons and practice. More than once he had assured her that she read quite well enough to suit him, and that he did not like to have her manner spoiled. What more did she want if he, and all her best friends, liked her reading as it was? But she wanted a great deal more, and knew that she did. She was enjoying the lessons wonderfully, and had no little pleasure in the thought that she would surprise him and others one of these days by showing them how far from spoiled she was. She was also enjoying to the full the innumerable side-lights thrown out concerning great pieces of literature, in prose and poetry, and the insight she was getting with regard to books in general. "'It is like taking a course in literature,' she told Burnham, and he had replied with a shrug of his handsome shoulders that if there was any one thing of which he was more tired than another, it was a course in literature. "'You are tired of everything that is worth while.' she had flashed back at him, to which he, with unfailing good nature and impudence, had replied, "'Except you, of course, you mean.' She smiled absently as she recalled all this, and then her face shadowed again over the problem. What was she going to do with her lessons in reading? True, they were most enjoyable in themselves, even if she did nothing with them, but they were expensive.' She was using for them the money that her aunt, who had wanted her at Long Branch this summer, had sent for her personal use, but she could think of a dozen ways to use it that would have been better for herself as well as her mother unless—but that meant the problem. Her plan had been to establish herself as a reader for private citizens of wealth and leisure, half-blind elderly men who wanted the daily papers read to them understandingly and eternally middle-aged and would-be literary ladies who did not know what to read nor where to find out. Such would, by degrees, find her out, and she would see to it that once found, they would hold on to her. She knew how to hoodwink the dear souls into thinking that they really knew a good deal about the book she was skimming for them. It is an art to know how to skip, the professor had said one day in class. She was learning how to skip. There were other departments in her plan. One, the thought of which delighted her, was the training of little children to love good literature. 
picking it out for them bit by bit, introducing them to Longfellow and Bryant and Lowell, and even Browning and Shakespeare, before they were supposed to be old enough to know that such names ever existed. What delightful work it would be to turn an immortal poem into a prose story that would capture the imaginations and hearts of little seven- and eight-year-olds, and afterwards introduce them to the poem and its author. She was charmed with the idea as it developed in her mind, and was sure she knew already of mothers by the score, who, once they understood her scheme, would be glad to pay her for giving their children such an opportunity. She would set about working up her class the very day she reached home. She would borrow the phrase, the children's story hour, from this rich Chautauqua program, and she would contrive in some way to get in at some of those story hours herself, in order to learn either how to do it, or how not to do it, one lesson would be almost as helpful as the other. Oh, she was sure she could succeed, and money could be made of it, that would be sufficient to relieve some of the anxieties that daily pressed her mother. All this she would do if, and there was the problem again that she was not yet willing to definitely think about, although she had come out for that express purpose. She was nearing the hall of philosophy now, and she allowed her thoughts to go back to the last meeting she had attended there. It had been a twilight Sunday vesper service, when air and sunlight and shimmering leaves and singing birds had done what they could to enhance the charm of the whole. The place itself was unique, a many-columned hall roofed over but open on all sides to sunlight and all the witching influences of nature. Blue sky arching above it, blue lake glimmering in the near distance, and at vesper time the westering sun making a glory in the sky, while yet its lingering beams were dancing among the leaves of the tall old trees. How beautiful it was! Eureka, who was at all times more susceptible to the influences of the beautiful than most of those who knew her well imagined, had felt almost immediately on that Sunday afternoon the strange and tender spell that the hall in the grove has power to weave around those whose hearts are attuned to such ministry. She had laughed a little at the four girls when they went into raptures the Sunday before about the Vesper service. She and Burnham, instead of attending it, had chosen to take a long tramp along the lake shore. "'Why should we have been there?' she had asked in response to the exclamations of regret. "'We had a lovely walk, and that service isn't different from other prayer meetings, I presume, even though they chose such a high-sounding name for it as Vesper service.' "'It is not like any other prayer-meeting in the world,' her mother said, almost indignantly. "'Why not? Don't they sing and pray and talk? What is that but a prayer-meeting?' "'She doesn't understand,' Mrs. Harrison said this with a despairing look at Mrs. Dennis, who suggested that one must attend a Chautauqua Vesper service in order to appreciate it. "'There is something about it that words will not describe, my dear,' this was said to Eureka. Besides, said Mrs. Roberts musingly, the bishop is there, you know. Eureka's response to this was an outburst of laughter and an exclamation. The way you said that, Aunt Flossie, was irresistible. I wish Burnham could have heard it. Honestly, the way that Mother and Aunt Marion and, well, all of you, and hosts of others for that matter, say the bishop, is just as a devout Roman Catholic would say the Pope. 
hearing you one wouldn't suppose that there was another bishop in this whole round world ever had been or ever would be no said mrs burnham calmly that is not the thought there are bishops aplenty but ours is the bishop go and hear him at vespers eureka and you will understand so on the following sunday eureka went to vespers burnham roberts in her train i am going to this meeting for your mother's sake not mine she had said as they sauntered down clark avenue being passed continually by hurrying throngs anxious to secure seats in the hall indeed he had said may i be allowed to ask how your presence at a vesper service is supposed to benefit my mother except of course as your presence anywhere is a benefit to all concerned save your pretty speeches for occasions where they will tell better it is not my presence that your mother cares one penny for it is yours i chanced to discover that she was particularly anxious to have you hear the bishop at this meeting so i decided to ask you to escort me to it as the easiest way of pleasing her as she said this burnham was looking at her with a curious smile on his face the full import of which she did not understand then he said do you know i think you are awfully good to my mother a great deal better than you are to your own this had vexed eureka she could not have told why save that it always made her angry to have it hinted that she was not good to her mother so little attention did she pay to the subtle workings of her inner self that had she been told that her anger arose from the fact that her conscience owned to the truth of the charge she would have been surprised and unbelieving to burnham she had responded sharply much you know about it i do and especially leave undone a thousand things for my mother's sake that you never hear of as for yours i suppose you think i don't know that your mother would ten times rather see you at vespers or that matter anywhere else without me than with me but you see i did not know how to get you there without my obnoxious presence so i came he had laughed good-naturedly as he always did at her thrusts and then he had said quite seriously something that puzzled her we don't either of us understand our mothers very well i am afraid there had been no time to question as to his meaning for they were within sound of the voices in the hall and they came a moment later under the spell of the service organ and cornet were playing and hundreds of voices were singing the evening song day is dying in the west heaven is touching earth with rest wait and worship while the night sets her evening lamps alight through all the sky following the song a voice firm and far-reaching with a certain quality in it that demanded reverent attention gave forth the startling command with which the responsive reading opened above all things and in all things o my soul thou shalt rest in the lord alway for he himself is the everlasting rest of the saints eureka had not expected to care for the service she had honestly sacrificed the long walk that she especially enjoyed at that hour to a good-natured desire to please both her mother and burnham's by their presence there 
but there was something compelling in the words to which she was listening, in the voice that was uttering them. Thou shalt. Actually it was a command. Rest in the Lord alway. Was her consciousness speaking to her soul ordering this to her? Suppose she could obey and rest in the Lord. The word rest did not in any sense describe her. She was restless, dissatisfied, unhappy, a great deal of the time. Oh, in truth, most of the time, nothing satisfied her. Nothing ever had, fully and lastingly. Thou shalt rest in the Lord, alway. Had the bishop put a special emphasis on that word, alway, or was it because it proclaimed a tremendous fact? For he himself is the everlasting rest of his saints. Was that it? Was it the explanation of all unrest, that people were continually seeking it in the wrong place? Was there such a thing as rest in God? What a solemnly glorious thought! God! Certainly he could rest a person if he would. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Did a voice speak that word just then? Only the voice of her childhood memory speaking to her soul. She was standing at her father's knee, beside his study chair, repeating the verse she had just learned. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It was true, then, for that call was the voice of God, he was offering rest. For he himself is the everlasting rest of his saints. But it was all for the saints. Yes, but this child of Christian parents had been carefully trained. She could seem to hear her father's voice in answer to her childish question. A saint, daughter, is one who has set apart his life as belonging to Jesus, chosen him, you know, for his Saviour and guide. But all people who had chosen him and followed his teachings did not rest. Her mother? Oh, dear, no, that word would never be used in describing mother. Aunt Ruth? Well, certainly Ruth Erskine Burnham had borne some particularly terrible trials very well indeed, and her face in these days wore a calm that suggested rest. And Aunt Flossie? The critic ran rapidly over Flossie Shipley Roberts's life story as she knew it from her own mother and from observation, and decided that Aunt Flossie certainly was different from most other people more quietly happy, perhaps, in spite of annoyances and discomforts, more sure of all things working out toward the final right. Still, she worries a good deal about Burnham, commented this merciless critic. There was Aunt Marion, too. Eureka knew the history of Marion Wilbur's skeptical girlhood, and of the rocks and shoals of her early married life. She had heard of her troubles as a stepmother, and she knew also that her stepdaughter, Grace, adored her now, not only permitting, but seeking her aid and influence in the rearing of her own children. It had to be admitted that Aunt Marion had made the sort of success in life that her girlhood had not promised. On the whole, the four Chautauqua girls being passed upon in rapid mental review witnessed well for the honor of their Lord. Yet they did not satisfy the critic, who did not realize that she was seeking the perfect satisfaction that can be found only in the master. At that point Eureka's attention had been again arrested by the voice of the bishop. He was leaning forward with clasped hands and speaking to his audience earnest, tender words as friend with friends. 
he was voicing in strong phrases his ever-deepening love for Jesus Christ his Saviour, his Master, his Lord, witnessing to his unfailing guidance through a long full life. I believe in him, he said, in his divinity, in his deity, in his humanity, I believe in him through and through with my heart and mind and soul. I committed myself to him. Through a long, full life he has kept the trust. I am persuaded that he will keep that which I have committed unto him. Listening to the strong, calm voice, full of that assurance which is born of knowledge, studying his face, recognizing the look on it as reflected power, the critic came suddenly to the conclusion that here was one who rested in the Lord, and realized in daily living that he was the everlasting rest of his saints. And if there was one, could there not be others? Why were there not many others? Were there many? Was there a place in the world where she could find a company of them, a great throng, each bearing on his face and in his life the truth that he was at rest in the Lord? Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Oh, the pity of it! Witnesses, lame and halt and blind! End of chapter 9